You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. The title of my sermon um, on this first weekend of 2024 is Hawks and Doves. We'll see what all of that's about in a moment. But our our gospel reading uh, this weekend comes out of Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read a piece of it. And throughout the sermon, we'll look at the broader context of it. But I want to just look at one section of our gospel reading here at the beginning just to kind of get our wheels turning. So Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Let's read this together. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Um, Over the last several years, I have come to greatly love and appreciate the Gospel of Mark. I've done a little bit of study, a fair amount of study in recent years, and I just have really grown to appreciate the Gospel of Mark. And I think that, unfortunately, too often it gets overlooked. When you ask people the question, uh, which is your favorite gospel in the New Testament? You know, there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You ask people, what is your favorite one? Typically, people say John or Matthew or Luke, but seldom will you hear people say, oh, the gospel of Mark, that one's my favorite, for whatever reason. We, um, we sometimes view the gospel of Mark as Matthew light, basically. And I think that that's a mistake, and I think it's not the case. First of all, we should should recognize that it's almost certain that the Gospel of Mark was the first Gospel account written down of Jesus' life. It's almost certain that the Gospel of Mark was the first one written. Before Mark wrote down this account, there was nothing written down. It was all circulating through oral uh, passage. And I suppose a lot of that had to do with the reality that a lot of these early Christians, they were expecting Jesus's return to occur within their own lifetimes. And so once that first generation of Christians are starting to uh, get to the end of their lives, they're realizing, wait a second, this might take a little bit longer than we thought it would. And here we are now 2,000 years later. And I thank God that they had that awareness Uh, so that we have these things written down. But Mark was the very first one. He said, you know what? We need to preserve this. We need to preserve these teachings and these sayings and these miracles and these stories for future generations. Mark was the first one to do that. And um, when you read the Gospel of Mark, even if you don't know you're reading the Gospel of Mark, you can tell you're reading the Gospel of Mark. First of all, because the word immediately is going to happen Every other sentence. That's his favorite word. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Sometimes the translators will, will, will translate the original Greek word. They'll say suddenly, just to try to 
put some variation in there because he's always saying it. He's in a hurry to tell this story. You know, Mark, he moves at a very brisk pace, almost a breathless pace. And he's got good news for us to hear. And he, he wants to tell it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. There's not a lot of, there's, there's not a lot of lingering around in stories and teachings. He just kind of moves. You can think of Mark sort of like as a messenger who's come from far away and he's been jogging, he's been running towards us and finally after three or four miles, Mark makes it to us and he's out of breath. But he doesn't wait for himself to catch his breath, he just goes right into it. He's like, okay, listen, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark. And I want us to go ahead and uh, look at the very beginning of how Mark starts his story, his account of Jesus' life. Let's look at the first three verses as we get rolling tonight. The beginning of the good news, Jesus Christ. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, 600 years before Jesus was born, in the year 586 B.C., one of the most important events in world history, the Babylonian Empire sends its military to surround the city of Jerusalem. They besiege the city of Jerusalem. They won't let anyone in. They won't let anyone out for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months to the point where people begin to starve to death. And at the right time, when it seems at its weakest and people are resorting to um, just unthinkable measures to sustain themselves, the Babylonians break down the city walls they set fire to the city of Jerusalem. They kill multitudes of people. They plunder Solomon's temple and then raise it to the ground. The city of Jerusalem is never to be quite the same. And, and, and the survivors, as many of them that could, they scatter, but a lot of the wealthy or powerful people, uh, the Babylonians take them captive and they deport them and bring them all the way back to Babylon where they will, hold, they will hold them in captivity and exile for the next several decades. The Babylonian exile, 586 B.C., that would be a good date for you to remember. It'll help you in your, your uh, Bible study. 586, Babylonian exile begins. And it was the, up until this point, the lowest experience for God's people. And it was a judgment from God that they had not been faithful. They had not been living up to their covenant, their, their, their covenant identity. The Babylonian exile. And it was in the middle of the Babylonian exile when the people of God had been brought low and humbled. It was in the middle of that that a prophet going by the name of Isaiah makes a prophetic announcement, a twofold prophetic announcement. He announces, number one, soon we are going to return to our land. This judgment is not permanent. God's going to restore us. Soon we're going to return home. And number two, someday God is going to come to us. He doesn't go into detail. 
He probably doesn't even know any more detail than that. He doesn't say anything about when this is going to happen. He just simply says, soon we're going to return home and someday in some way, God is going to come to us. Therefore, in light of that, Isaiah says, let's prepare the way for the Lord. Let's prepare a highway in the desert for our God. And let's take all of the mountains and hills and let's bring them low. Let's, let's lay down this runway strip. Let's bring the mountains low. Let's fill up the valleys. Bring them up. All of the crooked places, let's straighten them out. All of the rough places, let's smooth it out. And let's make it easy for our God to come among us. Now, of course, as a prophet, he's working with poetry here. This is metaphor. He's not saying we should, they should literally build and construct uh, an interstate highway in the desert. But what he's saying is, Let's bring about repentance and royal, uh, moral reformation in our lives. Our society is broken and corrupt with greed and, and power hunger and, and treating human beings as objects and self-exaltation. Let's turn from that. Let's, let's repent. Let's, let's um, rethink our trajectory here. And where we're prideful and self-exalting, let's bring ourselves low and humble ourselves. And, and where we're debased, let's bring that up. And where we are crooked and rough in the way we treat one another and deal with one another, particularly the marginalized, let's straighten that out and, and smooth it out. Let's, let's make it easy for our God to come to us. And then at the very end of the Old Testament, a couple hundred years later or so, Last two verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. The prophet Malachi takes this concept of the Lord coming to us and he kind of expands it a little bit and he announces that the Lord is going to send a messenger and this messenger is going to prepare the way for the Lord to come to us. The time is near and this messenger is going to prepare the way. And, and Malachi says this messenger is going to be none other than Elijah, that great and fiery, angry prophet, Elijah. He's been off the scene at this point for a few hundred years, but Malachi is saying somehow he's going to return. Elijah will come and he is going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. But by the time we're in Mark, it's now been centuries since this was announced that soon we're going to return to the land and someday our God is going to come to us. It's been a few hundred years since that announcement was made. And by this point, you know, they were back home. They had returned to the land. But that whole part about God coming to us, as far as anybody could tell, it hadn't happened yet. And now it's centuries have gone by and they're still waiting. So let's get caught up to where we are now in Mark 1 at the very beginning. It says, uh, well, at the very beginning of um, the gospel story that Mark is telling, it's, it's in the 15th year of the Roman emperor Caesar Tiberius. And Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, is the tetrarch of the region of Galilee. He's kind of like a king figure, although he wasn't given that formal title of king. You can kind of think of him that way. But really, if he was any kind of king, he was more like a puppet king on behalf of the Roman emperor Tiberius. But Herod Antipas is the tetrarch of the region of Galilee, if you want to be, be proper about it. The Roman governor of Judea at this time is a cruel man 
named Pontius Pilate. And the uh, ruling class of Jerusalem, the, the um, rich and powerful elite in the Jerusalem uh, hierarchical leadership, they were in collusion with Rome, starting with the Jewish high priest, theoretically the most important religious figure amongst our people, Caiaphas, and he's corrupt, and he's colluding with Rome. All of the, the ruling class, the religious leadership of that day, and generally speaking, uh, they were compromised. And the common people were suffering. And they were being exploited spiritually and economically. They were being manipulated by the powers that be. And it was a time where there was sort of a mixture between joy, uh, excuse me, hope and despair. The people are despairing. First of all, because, man, look how messed up things are with, with Tiberius in charge and Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and all of this collusion and all of this corruption and all of this injustice. The people of God were despairing. And at the same time, there was a sense of hope because they were still clinging to those ancient promises. They were clinging to the words of the prophets and they were believing and expecting and anticipating and waiting that someday, in some way, somehow, our God is going to act. He's going to come. He's going to act in some, some way. 20 miles east of Jerusalem during this time, over by the Jordan River, in the Judean desert, a young man, a prophet, he begins preaching. And he's not very polite. And he's not very refined. But you cannot ignore him. And he's not preaching in, in the metropolis. He's not preaching in the temple complex in the Jerusalem and one of the major population centers there. He's preaching out in the desert. I don't know of any church planters today who's saying, you know what I'm going to go? I'm going to go plant a church out in the San Gabriel desert. And that's where John roots himself. And he begins preaching. I don't even know who he's preaching to at first. Maybe he's preaching to one person, I imagine. And then that one person tells another person. And then eventually two people turns into 20 people, which eventually turns into 200 people. And before long, as Mark tells us, all of Judea and Jerusalem, all of the major, everybody, everybody's going out to this guy in the desert. John's not going to them. They're going out to him. That's when you know you've got something to say and people are listening. They're coming out to this man in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And he's preaching a message of repentance. He's saying to the people, he's saying, we've got to reform our ways. We've got to rethink things. We've got to change the way that we're living. We, we have been living according to the ways of corruption and greed and grasping for power over one another and violence and all of these ways of darkness. We need to turn. We need to repent. And if we will do so, then your God will forgive you. But there's something very distinctive about what John is out there doing. He's not just preaching. He's also baptizing folks. And there's a very important connection that I want you to see with regards to John's baptism. He's baptizing people where? In the Jordan River, right? Why is that important? I'm going to show you why that's important. And oftentimes we don't get taught this. We don't learn this sometimes in our study. But I'm going to show you what John is, is getting at. 
John could have baptized people anywhere, but he specifically baptizes people, he immerses them in water in this particular location along the Jordan River. And what he's doing is he's staging a reenactment of the original entrance into the promised land that had occurred centuries earlier by their ancestors. You remember this story in Exodus? God raises up Moses, who through a series of divine acts is able to deliver the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And they cross through the Red Sea on dry ground and they begin wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and a bunch of things happen. But eventually they get to where they're headed and, and they're on the verge, the, the very edge of the promised land. You remember Moses dies. God raises up a new leader, Joshua. And Joshua leads the children of Israel across the Jordan River on dry, dry ground and they enter into the promised land. A new beginning. They finally arrive. They're no longer displaced. Now they are the people of God in, in the promised land and a new covenant people everything's before them but what John is saying through this baptism in the Jordan is he's saying we haven't been faithful to our identity we have not been living as the people of God we have not been living out our covenantal uh, connection to the Lord so what we're going to do is we're going to take it from the top. We're going to start from scratch and we're going to re-enter into this promised land. And this time, we're not only going to be the people of God by name, but we're going to live it out faithfully. That's what he's calling people to. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people, Mark tells us, not even just Mark or Luke or John or Matthew, history tells us. History tells us people were going out to this guy by the droves, listening to his message, repenting, and being baptized in the Jordan. I'm talking thousands and thousands of people. John becomes the most famous man in the Middle East. And eventually, the ruling hierarchy in Jerusalem decides we've got to check this guy out. And so a delegation of priests and Levites are sent from the temple complex and they're sent way out there in the wilderness to go investigate John. They're, they show up and they're wearing their priestly garb and they're not interested in hearing John preach. They're not interested in being baptized. They're, they're, they just reject all of that. But what they really want to know is who is this guy? What is he saying? And how is it going to impact us? How might it threaten our status? That's what they're really interested in. And so they show up out there on the banks of the Jordan. And it's interesting, when John uh, sees these folks from, from the temple uh, hierarchy, when he sees these folks arrive, John doesn't say, oh, welcome. So glad to have you in our service today. No, John says, you bunch of snakes. You brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Because it's common that the axe is already laid to the root of the tree. John doesn't mince words. And they say, uh, well, tell us, who are you? Are, are, are you the Messiah? Are you somebody claiming to be the Messiah? And John says, no, I am not the Messiah. They say, well, are you uh, the prophet that, that we find in the books of Moses? Is that who you are? And John's like, no, that's not who I am. Well, who are you then? And John says, I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And he says, I'm not the one, but the one is coming after me, and it's time to get ready. Now let's pick it up, verses 6 through 8. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, 
and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Mark go into detail about John's diet and dress habits? Why does he feel the need to tell us that? It's for a reason. He's trying to help us make the connection between John and the guy Malachi was talking about when Malachi says Elijah's coming. Mark's telling us how John is dressed and what John is eating because he wants us to see. Oh, he dresses like Elijah? He acts like Elijah? He preaches. He's angry like, like Elijah. He, he, he lives out in the wilderness like Elijah. He's not dependent upon uh, the corrupt economy of Rome and the collusion of the Jerusalem elite. He's off the grid, living out in the desert, eating locusts and and grasshoppers, it's kosher, you know. Uh, and when he can find some wild honey, he has some dessert. So he's being sustained by God in the wilderness, just like Elijah. He finds an old camel hide, and he says, I think I'm going to wear that with a leather belt, just like Elijah. That's the reason Mark paints that picture. He's wanting you to know the guy Malachi was talking about a few centuries ago, this is him. This is him. He's the messenger to prepare the way for who? The Lord. <laughs> Y'all didn't sound too confident with that answer. All right. Verse 9. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, here you and I are. We're fresh out of the Christmas season. The 12th day of Christmas was yesterday. So you can, you can uh, pick up your Christmas tree now officially. But uh, we've made it through the Christmas season, so this story is fresh in your minds. Jesus is born in Bethlehem to his mother and uh, adoptive father, Mary and Joseph. And and they lived there in in Bethlehem for a certain period of time. But eventually, when Herod the Great launches an attack upon all of the the, the baby boys in the town of Bethlehem, uh, the Holy Family flees to Egypt until Herod's death. And after they get news that Herod has passed on, they return. And they don't go back to Bethlehem. Instead, they go back up north into Galilee where this thing all started with the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary. And they go and live in this tiny little no-name village called Nazareth. And it's Nazareth that will become the boyhood home, the adolescent home, the teenage home, and the young adult home of Jesus. And, And Jesus, for the first couple decades of his life he's working in an apprenticeship with his father his father is is a carpenter or a builder tecton is the word he's like probably more like a stonemason or some sort but he's a builder and jesus learns the trade and he begins to work in that trade himself and he's living a very quiet anonymous life in nazareth but when jesus hears about what his distant relative i don't know is a third cousin or something like that his cousin john he hears about what john is doing way down south in judea by the jordan jesus leaves nazareth and he makes the long journey south it would have been a several day journey he makes the journey all the way down there to the jordan until he sees a big crowd of people in the, out in the middle of nowhere in the desert and he figures that's where my cousin is and john is there baptizing and Jesus arrives and he participates in Jesus's excuse me in John's public act 
of repentance. Remember, what is John preaching? He's preaching you need to repent. You need to change your ways. And we're told that this is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus wades into the water and says, here I am, baptize me. Now, Matthew and Luke tell us about John's reluctance to do so. And as Christians, we understand that because we all confess that Jesus is without sin. He's sinless. So why is it that Jesus, what is he doing participating in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Well, among other things, remember, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Jesus doesn't stand on the banks of the Jordan watching people get baptized and saying, yeah, you're all a bunch of sinners. You got a problem. I guess you got to go through this. No, Jesus enters into it with us. He enters into the waters in solidarity with our human condition in order to break us free from it and lead us out of it. And this baptism, with Jesus' baptism, Jesus is immersed into his mission. This is really the beginning. This is the demarcation point. I could say it this way. For the first 30 years of his life, Jesus has been a carpenter in Nazareth. He's been living a quiet life. No miracles. No healings. No preaching. Nothing noteworthy at all. In fact, in the Gospel writings, from his birth to his baptism, there's only one story we're even given. And that's when he was 12 years old in the temple. And, and that whole episode. But other than that, we're not told anything else about the 30 years, the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Why? Because there's not much to tell. He's just been living an ordinary life of a pious Galilean Jew in a small village. But with his mission, with, excuse me, with his baptism, he is now suddenly immersed into his mission. And what is Jesus' mission? Let's look at it. I want to I want to jump ahead for just a moment. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news. What's another word for good news? Say it loud and confident. Gospel. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news believe in the gospel so did jesus preach the gospel yes or no it's not a trick question did jesus preach the gospel yes and what is the gospel the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god has come near repent and believe this good news now his cross and resurrection is what makes that happen that's his crowning moment that's when he's crowned king but the big story is that the kingdom of god has come so Jesus came to announce that a whole new era of human life under the reign and vision of God has come. And he invites us to participate in it. He announces the kingdom of God is near. It's right in front of your face. It's in your midst. And as he announces it, now he enacts it by healing people and driving out demons. Why, why is it so important that Jesus healed people and drove out demons and released people from the bondage of oppression? Because none of those things exist in God's vision for humankind. And God's vision for what human life and the, and the world should look like and can look like and one day will look like, there's no sickness and disease. There's no oppression of any sort. 
And so Jesus announces, hey, the kingdom of God has come near. It's here right in front of your face. And in order to prove it, he starts demonstrating the kingdom by healing people and miracles and setting people free and all of that kind of stuff. And once he announces it and once he demonstrates it, the next thing he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he teaches us. Now that I've announced it, now that I've proven it to you, now let me teach you what it looks like to dwell in God's kingdom. Let me tell you, let me show you what God's kingdom looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who crave for things to be made right. And on and on it goes. So Jesus came to announce to us that the way things presently are in this broken, wounded, damaged world that is beyond human repair, the whole story of human history is the story of greed and and violence and pride and just all forms of ugliness. But the way the world presently is, is not the way the world has to be. Jesus comes and announces, there's a whole new world I'm creating right now. Through my life, through my teaching, my death, resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm welcoming you to be a part of it. Let me teach you the way. Follow me, and I will show you the way of abundant life. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's the gospel. Believe it and follow Christ. Verse 10. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. So Jesus goes down into the river. He's baptized. And as he's coming up out of the water, the heavens are torn open. It's a very violent word. In fact, it's the same word. You might find this interesting. It's the same word that is used to describe what happens to the veil in the temple when Jesus is crucified. It's torn asunder. That's what happens to the heavens. The heavens are ripped apart. And by the way, this is an answer to Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64. You remember when Isaiah says, oh, that you would tear open the heavens, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah is broken over the condition of his people. We're wounded, we're hurting, we're lost, we're in chaos. Things have gone awry. Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And what's happening here at Jesus' baptism is the answer to Isaiah's prayer centuries earlier. This is a divine invasion of heaven. The world has been as the world has always been. It's been under the rule of Satan. But now there is an invasion. It's D-Day from heaven. And there's a violent tearing open of the heavens. But watch this. After the heavens are torn open and this divine invasion comes, how does the Spirit of God come from heaven? Does the Spirit come as a bird of prey? As a war eagle? No, when the heavens are torn asunder... The Spirit comes as a dove. Not a smart bomb, not a missile, not a war eagle. The Spirit comes as a dove. The Spirit of God does not come as a war eagle, but as a peaceable dove. Now, the symbolism here is extremely important for you to understand. In those days, there were a lot of eagles around. There were eagles on all of those Roman standards, those Roman battle standards. I want to show you just a rendering of it, kind of a poor rendering of it here. But this is what the Roman military looked like in formation. They had these uh, banners, these um, 
these battle standards, and on top were these eagles with, with arrows. It was a symbol of Roman dominance. You know, if you lived in some uh, secluded part of, of the ancient world, and you're just trying to make a quiet life, trying to get by, and all of a sudden you see that coming towards you, you're like, oh no, those are the Romans, and they're coming. And they're going to talk all about peace and freedom, but, but actually they're going to take all of our stuff and make us their subjects. That's what's going to happen. And all of that was symbolized by the Roman eagle, a symbol of power, might, dominance. In fact, Jesus, you might find this really interesting, Jesus in Matthew 24, he gives a cryptic prophecy about what's going to happen to Jerusalem because of its corruption. And he says it's a corpse and where the corpse is, the eagles will gather. It's a cryptic prophecy about what will happen in 70 AD when the 10th Roman legion with their battle standards or their eagles on top surround the city of Jerusalem and eventually will completely destroy the city. But what we have here is a violent tearing open of the heavens, but instead of an eagle, a peaceable dove. Because if an eagle comes, it's just the same as it ever was. That's what, that's what Pharaoh does. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does. That's what Alexander the Great does. That's what the Caesars do. It's, it's, it's the pattern of this world that the enemy wants to conform us to. He wants to constrain our imagination to make it incapable for us to even see our way ahead, to follow authentically the way of Calvary, the way of the Sermon on the Mount. But when the heavens are torn open on this day, it's not the war eagle, it's the dove. It's the dove that comes. The same kind of thing is happening, by the way, in the book of Revelation. You remember the scene where John the Revelator, he's weeping, he's filled with grief because... Um, no one is found worthy to break open the seals and open up the scrolls and release the purposes of God in the earth. And then the elder says, stop weeping and look behind you. The lion of the tribe of, of Judah has conquered. And John turns around and it's not a lion, it's a lamb. So here's this violent tearing open of the heavens, this divine invasion, but it's not a war eagle. It's a dove that comes. Now, at last, let's look at our last verse and I'm going to close with this. And a voice came from the heavens. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And so now, here at the baptism of Jesus, we see the Holy Trinity. The Father tears open the heavens. The Spirit comes like a dove. And Jesus of Nazareth is proclaimed the Son of God. This is the beginning of the good news. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's nothing less than a divine invasion from heaven. But it's an invasion of love, of grace, of mercy, of peace, of forgiveness, of salvation, of healing, and newness. Things being made right. The world has been thoroughly broken, and God has acted to set things right. Amen. I don't know about you, I want to be part of that. I want to be made right, and I want to be useful in God's project of making the world right again through His Son, Jesus. And you're invited to be a part of this kingdom movement. What do you do? What, what, if you, what do you do if you're like, I want to be a part of this? What do I do? First of all, you believe the good news. A lot of people don't believe. A lot of people believe the way the world is is the way the world has to be. No, you believe the good news that the kingdom of God has come. Believe the good news and repent. 
which means rethink your life, turn, right? Now that's, in, in some way, that's going to be happening the rest of your life if you're following Jesus. I think it was John Wesley who said, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. You're following Jesus, you're going to be doing a lot of turning the rest of your life. I know I am, because there's a lot of stuff that I need to be healed from and be saved from, right? I need to be saved from greed and pride and envy and unforgiveness and all that kind of thing. That's a lifelong project, right? So all of my life, if I'm authentically following Jesus, it's going to be repentance. But there comes a demarcation point at the beginning where you make a decision that's going to change the overall trajectory of your life. I'm going to turn from this way of living. I'm not going to live this way. I believe there's a new way, the way of the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe God's going to help me to live that out. So I'm going to change my trajectory. That's repentance. Believe the good news. Repent. Thirdly, get baptized as soon as you can. Get baptized as quickly as you can. If Jesus was baptized and we're following Jesus, we're going to follow him into the waters of baptism. Amen? Believe, repent, be baptized, and then what? Keep following Jesus. Keep following Jesus. Just keep following Jesus. You mess up, you get back up, and you keep going. That's what God's grace and mercy are for. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that's going to continue healing and restoring you throughout your life. Your, your experience of God's grace is not limited to the moment you said yes to Jesus. Whether you're aware of it or not, you're experiencing the grace of God. You're living in the grace of God every day of your life. And so keep following Jesus, trusting that as I do that, the Spirit is going to transform me into a person who's able to live out my baptismal identity as a son or daughter of the Lord Most High. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. Thank you.